Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to be with us and guide us and lead us in what you would have us to see and understand. We ask you to just bring calmness over everything and that you will guide and lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Would to God you could, you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest in any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, that your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he that is coming, comes preaches another Christ, whom you have not preached, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might bear with him. All right. So here we're going to look at Paul talking to the people. He says, I would to God, or he'd be saying, I wish that something would happen that hasn't happened before. In other words, that you listen to him. Paul, Paul is feeling a little out of sorts here. The people have not really listened to him in the past. They've, they've not recognized him. He's the founder of the church, and yet he feels like they're not listening to him when he gives them their, you know, their instructions. And he says, I really want you to listen to me. Uh, I'm going I'm to be talking about some things. And he says, I'm going to be talking foolishness. And this chapter really is something that, from a human point of view, is foolishness. Or at least from a spiritual point of view, is foolishness. And he says, I want you to endure or bear with me. And the reason he says is because I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. And we think about this, most of the time when we think of jealousy, we think of the bad side of jealousy. Somebody trying to control somebody else because they're so jealous. But there is a good side of jealousy. In, in the Hebrew, jealousy really brings on an individual who will not allow any temptation in their relationship. And this is the way it should be between a husband and wife. They should not endure anybody trying to get in between them. Uh, and it doesn't mean you keep them from having any relationships with anybody else, but you know, there's especially women tend to notice that you know that another woman is making a play on her on her uh, spouse a lot faster than they you know. Guys are clueless, and I know that we are clueless, you know, in many cases, and we don't see things happening that many times that the woman sees. And here, Paul is saying, "I am jealous over you." I've led you to Christ. I have a great ambition for you to grow. And this is the idea of any pastor. Any pastor really cares about his, the people in his church, and he wants to see them grow deeper with Christ and not end up somewhere else or following false, false teachers, false doctrines. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm jealous over you. I, I have this great, earnest desire, the zeal, to see you because it is a godly, godly jealous. In uh, the Old Testament, God talks about himself being jealous of, his, of the Israelites. They were his bride. And he goes, I don't want you to follow after anything else. And they kept following after idols. And God says, you're, you're committing adultery, you know, spiritual adultery, but you're committing adultery to me. And he goes, I don't want this for you. I don't want you doing this. And Paul is thinking of this as he's bringing this up. I'm jealous after you, after godly's jealous. He says, for I have espoused you to one husband. 
And basically he's saying, I brought you to Jesus. I have introduced you to Jesus, and I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, chaste here means literally totally pure. Uh, this is a miraculous thing, and this can only happen when we come into Christ Jesus and he forgives us anyway. Because we have so much sin in our life that we cannot be a pure vessel before God without the righteousness of Christ. And Paul is saying, I, I want to present you pure to the husband. And this is, he's speaking to the church, not an individual. I want to, I want to present my church to this. In Hebrews 13, 17, we're told that obey those who have rule over you because they have to answer to God. And this is what Paul is saying. I have to answer for you guys. I want to present you pure. I want you to have listened to this teaching. And this is something that's so important for us. What do we listen to? How are we following God? And God is wanting us to be pure before him. And it is sometimes very difficult for us to be pure before God because it's so much temptation out there, especially in our day and age when we can bombard our minds and thoughts real easily right in our own homes with the television and the movies and the books and everything we, we bring in. Just a century ago, if you wanted to be entertained, you had to go to the theater. You had to make a conscious decision to go someplace. You didn't get radio or TV broadcast into your house. Um, so the way we get bombarded now is different than it used to be. The temptations and the sins are still the same, but the way it is delivered is different. And he says, I want to present you. He says, but I fear. He says, I, I have something that I'm concerned about. Lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity of, that is in Christ. He goes all the way back to the very first sin. Adam and Eve created perfect. No sin in their life. And what was the first thing the serpent did as, as Satan came in and did? Has God said? He questioned God. And they entertained that thought. And too often we spend time wondering, did God really say something? And we forget what he said. And we do this in so many different avenues that we go in front of. You know, what do we fill our minds with? And this is very important. What do we fill our minds with? Are we filling our minds with God's word, the simplicity of his word? And this is the amazing thing. You know, Paul said, you know, as the serpent beguiled or, or, or with, tested Eve through his uh, subtlety, his is lying, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. One of the problems a lot of people have with the gospel message is its simplicity. The, the fact that it is free from pretense, it's not self-seeking, and it's just simple. You know, I've had people actually tell me when I'm witnessing to them, well, you cannot get saved. It cannot be that simple to get saved. Well, the question is, well, how hard do you want it to be? You know, we can't, we can't meet the simple. How can, how can we meet the complex? You know, if I can't accept that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and rose from the dead so that I could be saved and brought into Christ, what do I want? 
Well, what most people say when it's too simple is, well, what did I get to do? You know, what good works did I do? What kind of gifts did I have to bring? What, what did I have to do to get this? And that is a problem for most people because the gospel is simple. You know, all we do is surrender to God. And I've shared this with some, so many people over the years, and most times people go, well, how do you surrender? You do it. <laughs> you know, we've talked about that many times. You just surrender. You, you quit fighting it. And, and as a, the description I use is we're all sitting in this room. If the police were outside saying, come out with your hands up, we have a choice. We come out surrendered with our hands up, or we, you know, as they said in the old uh, B-movies, come and get me. <laughs> You know, and they come and get you. Uh, one, way you. one way or the other, you lose. You either do it voluntarily or it's enforced. At the white throne judgment, every knee will bow before God. Every knee. Some will be forced because they're saying, no, I'm not going to turn over. Others, like those of us who have accepted Christ before, will bow, we'll be bowing before he even asks us to bow. But everybody else will be enforced to bow. And this is what he's saying, the simplicity, the simplicity that is in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. And he says, I am the gate. I am the narrow gate. One of the things we get accused of so often as Christians is that we're so narrow and unaccepting of other positions, and that is true. God says it. We've got to believe it and follow it. Because we cannot make up our own way of doing things. God says he's the only way. He's the only way. And that's what it matters. Because every other religion out there is built upon works. And if you've been around long enough looking at other different religions, you know that that's exactly what they're all built. And the sad thing is there's many denominations and, and churches that are built upon works. You've got to do these things to, to show that you are God's to prove that you're God's. And you know, I've said this all, all the time, you know, yes, we will change. We change because God lives in us, he crucifies our flesh and he comes out of us and we will be more like him with every passing year, every passing day. But it's not because I am sitting there trying to make myself perfect. Because if I'm doing it, it's all works. And he says, your works don't, aren't worth anything. 64 tells us that all our righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. The best things that I can do in my own strength, God says, is a bunch of filthy rags. Satan always sits there and tries to trick us into lies against God. And this is something that is so important. He is the master of lies. He is the father of lies. He is very good at lies. He can make everybody think that he's telling them the truth. He was, he was the archangel. He's, he knows enough truth to make a lie sound convincing. And if you've ever had somebody who's convinced you of lie, it's because there was so much truth in it. If somebody comes up and gives you a completely false story, you know, that's just so obnoxious that you go, that, that's no way that's true. You know, we see right through it. But if they give mostly true information and then twist it just a little bit, we can be tied up really easily. And that's what Satan tries to do. He takes this idea that somehow God wants us to be good, and God does want us to be good, but he wants to be the one that does it, and twists it into you've got to be able to do it. And we very foolishly try to do it. 
I strive, I work real hard to make myself look good. And I've got to look good amongst all the people because, you know, heaven knows if they saw the real me, they might not like me. And we lie to ourselves all, that, all the time. And Satan emphasized those lies. And he's really good at getting us to do wrong things because he comes into us and said, well, you know, God will forgive you if you do this. True statement, God will forgive us if we do something. There will be consequences. He kind of leaves that part out. <coughs> and then as soon as we commit the, the sin, he'll condemn us and tell us how awful and, and, and bad we are and how can God ever forgive you for doing something like that and bring guilt upon us. And both cases uses truth. There's consequences for our sin. And God hates our sin. And he will forgive us of our sin when we come before him and we repent. He uses partial truths and then he uses them against us in both cases. And so we need to really be looking at the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. I let Christ come into me. He crucifies my flesh. He takes mastery over my life and he works out in my life. Now, we look at this. When we get saved, it is an instantaneous thing that we get saved and God looks at us as perfect. We first get saved, we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and Jesus says, yes, you're mine. The Father at the courtroom of heaven says, this child is perfect. He declares it from heaven. That's justification. He says, you are perfect. You've never committed sin in my sight because it's covered. At the very end of our life, we will be glorified and we will become what he said we were at the beginning. We have an entire lifetime where we become sanctified. And again, it's not me who sanctifies myself. It's God who sanctifies me, sets me aside, makes me holy. And he does it very slowly, usually. Now, there's some times when he comes in and he makes miraculous changes. And I, and I truly believe that anybody who's saved has at least one miraculous change thing in their life that says, this was changed when I came to Christ. I truly believe that. I can't prove it scripturally, but it's just been my experience and what I have seen. At least one thing is a pretty big change. For me, my temper was taken away. And I've seen other people who've just, all of a sudden, some sin in their life was just quickly taken away. I think God does that for a big reason, is to prove to us that he has made a change in our life. For some people, it's just the guilt. They've been so guilty for what they've done wrong, and just lifting that guilt is a great miracle. And so there's something that will be a big change when you become a Christian. And then you'll spend the rest of your life letting God work out those changes. And I wish they were faster sometimes. <laughs> I wish they were really fast sometimes, but, but you know, God works slowly in our life. Why? Probably because we couldn't handle the big changes. What happens if you change something real big in your life? You know, if you've ever said, well, I'm going to do something, you know, whatever it might be, I'm, I'm going to start exercising. <coughs> How hard is it to get into the habit of exercising and doing it? You know, it takes 30 days to create a habit, and yet most of us break that habit long before the 30 days is over. And God is saying, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you, and it's going to be slow, and it's going to be a work, but it's still going to be my work. And over time, we look back at our life and say, wow, God, I, I, you've changed me so much. You know, three years ago, I wouldn't have responded this way to that person. You know, I'd have torn their head off. I wouldn't have been even saying, you know, walking away from them. You know, or, wow, God, I can now forgive that person. Or I can even like that person. 
you know, and five years ago, six years ago, you know, a decade ago, no way would that have ever happened. All because God works out of us. And this is why it's so precious. He says, the simplicity of Christ. Satan lied to, to Eve right from the very beginning. Did God really say, you won't really die? You know, and she listened to him. And she took the fruit and ate it, and everything changed. And then Adam you know, took it as well. And it says that he was with her, and he took the fruit, and everything in, in this world changed. Everything in the world changed. You know, we, we've got to really think about how bad is sin? Sin changed the entire creation of this world. From a perfect world to a world that has all kinds of problems and, and issues. Weeds, thorns, death, disease, storms, you know, earthquakes, tsunamis, whatever, whatever. All these bad things that happen are a result of sin and a consequence of sin. And people go, well, that's not fair. Well, it wasn't fair that they messed up God's perfect creation. And God put a consequence. And he put a heavy consequence on them because they had no sin nature. We have, we have to work on getting over our sin nature. Uh, we have great opportunities to sin that are presented to us. And the thing about it is we generally want to sin. You know, we're told that we have the pride of life, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We see things we want, and we go after them. We uh, have the flesh that wants to have what it wants to have. Usually what it wants to have is not good for us, but what it wants, it wants. And then just the pride of life. I've got to make myself look good. We have quite a big issue in and of ourselves. We can, we can sin without even ever being tempted because of who we are and our sin nature. And Paul is saying, the serpent beguiled her from the simplicity of the truth. And he's trying to do the same thing with us as Christians. He wants to beguile us away from the simplicity of the truth. And this is something that is very important. We want to complicate our walk with God so often. How complicated can I make it? I hope I try to simplify it as much as possible. Because it isn't me trying to, to please God. It isn't me trying to earn salvation. It isn't me trying to look good amongst everybody. It's me letting God live through me. And this separates us. The greatest compliment that you can be paid was paid to me this last week when somebody says, you really live out what you believe. And as much as possible, I try to let God live out what I believe. No, perfectly? Nope, not perfectly. But as much as possible, I want to let God live through. I want to be forgiving of other people because God forgives. He forgave me. I need to be able to forgive others. He loves me. I need to love others. He, he says, I want, you know, I want you to be mine, and I want to bring people to Christ. Why? Because he wants us. You know, and then, you know, this is the most amazing thing to me is why he would want us in the first place. He died for us, and he gets us. All the bad that we can bring into the relationship, he gets us. All the mistakes that we commit, he gets us. And yet he loves us. And he's patient with us. God's patience is an amazing thing. 
How patient is God? He allows us to make so many mistakes. We go through the Bible and God repeats himself probably hundreds of times on each topic. Why? Because he knows how weak we are. He knows how frail we are. He knows how forgetful we are. He knows that we see things with our eyes and not with our spirit in most cases. And the amazing thing is when we can start seeing through God's eyes. We see things through God's eyes. We see God moving and we allow him to work. Many times I, there's just a sense in me that says don't do something or do something. And when I don't listen to it, I find out very quickly that it was God. Even when I do listen to it, I find out very quickly that it was God. But, you know, we need to be in a place where we're listening to God and say, God, what is it you want me to do or not do? Because it could be either way. And it is so hard sometimes because we get so busy doing the things our way. And then Paul goes on to say, for if he comes, he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might bear him. So he's saying, I want you not to listen to these things. Don't listen to somebody who's teaching something that we have not been teaching, Paul said. And this is why it's important to have a good teacher in our life, because they can help us not fall for the, for the lies. And the Holy Spirit comes into us, and the Holy Spirit will keep us from falling for these lies. I've shared with you, many times I've been listening to a, on the radio some pastor or speaker, and it's kind of background noise, and all of a sudden, alarm bells go off in my head saying, I need to pay attention. Something is wrong with what this guy just said. And Paul brings this up that your leaders are important. Don't listen to something that you've not heard. And if you're listening to something that doesn't match the scriptures, basically saying, don't do it. Don't be accepting of that, of that stand. Don't, don't uh, bear that kind of teaching in that person. This is one of the problems I have a lot of times with televangelists on the radio and the TV. Because there's so many of them that shouldn't be teaching, period. And there are good ones, but there are a lot of bad ones out there. And even in the churches, there's lots of bad teachers out there that aren't teaching the word of God. Uh, there's many churches where they'll read a scripture and then they'll talk about anything but the scripture they read. And, you know, and make up what they want to say. And this is something like, it's very important to be in God's word and to know what he's, what he's bringing up. Verse 5, for I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifest among you in all things. Have I committed as an, an offense in abashing myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of, of God freely? I robbed other churches, taken wages from them to do you service. And when I was present with you, I wanted and wanted, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, brethren, which came from Macedonians supplied and in these things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Acadia. Wherefore, because I love you not, 
God knows. But that I do, I will do, and that, that I may be cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, for wherein they glory they may be found even as we. For such as false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostle, into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if if his ministers also transformed, be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So Paul goes on to say, you know, I'm not lesser than any other apostle out there. All right? And this was part of the exact, the accusation they made to him. Paul, you know, who, who made you an apostle in the first place? You never even met Jesus. You didn't walk with Jesus as the other apostles did. You, you, you know, why are you special? And he's saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not in behind them at all. Because they may be something, but I know from what I... And if you read in Acts, Paul... Paul got saved. He went to Damascus. He left Damascus in a basket, which he's going to talk about at the end of this chapter, if you know the story. He goes to Damascus. The governor tries to arrest him. The people drop him out out, off over the wall in a basket so he can get away. He goes into Arabia and spends three years in Arabia learning from God. Then he goes and meets the other disciples and finds out they don't know anything, anything greater than he does. And so this is what he's saying. I'm not lesser than any of those disciples that saw Jesus. I, I'm, I'm no worse off. I'm as good as they are. He says, and then he goes in verse 6, but though I be rude in speech, and rude in speech means unlearned. Paul is anything but unlearned. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was, is the number three Jewish teacher of all time, not just number three of his day, but number three Jewish teacher of all time. Paul was well-trained. He's being very sarcastic in this chapter. He goes, though, though, though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. He goes, I know these things. You may, you may think I can't pre- present them well. And remember, we've talked about the picture of Paul is that he was short, stubby, a little bit on the fat side with a squeaky voice and balding. You know, he wasn't, he had no presence. You know, when he was in your presence, you weren't impressed by what you saw. And he's saying, you know, you guys may think that I couldn't speak well, but I have the knowledge. I have the knowledge that you're supposed to learn. And this is one of the things we see when I've talked about televangelists and everything. Some of them have, get, you know, they're down, down to the T. They've got their, their perfect suits and their perfect haircuts and their shoes, but their knowledge isn't there. They look the part. They look good. They can even speak well. And that's what Paul's saying. He goes, I have the knowledge. I have the knowledge if you're just willing to listen. And he says, but we have been thoroughly manifest among you in all things. He says, I spent time with you. You know who I am. One of the things I often wish I knew on these, on these radio and TV shows and the evangelists are, what is this guy like in his church? What is this guy like with his pastor, with the, other, with the people of his church? Is he loving? Is he kind? He's saying, you know, especially the ones that say good things. And it's just something in the back of my mind that kind of rolls around. What is this person really like? They've got the words. And Paul says, I was, I was presented before you. I spent a year or two with you. 
you guys know who I am. You know how much I care about you. You know how much I love you. He goes, is, this is not something that is something that's going to be a surprise to you. You know me. He says, have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel freely? And he's saying, I humbled myself so that you could be exalted. And there are people that don't like that. And Paul's saying, you know, I made myself weak. I made myself of no report so that you could be exalted. And that is our job as Christians is to exalt others, to make them feel better about themselves, to feel good. And if that means that I don't do it myself and I don't look to make myself strong, don't care because God knows who I am. God knows who I am and he's going to do this. And Paul's saying, you know, did I commit an offense to you? Did I make you angry because I exalted you? And I preached the gospel freely. He says, I did not charge you for the gospel. This is this thing that bothers me a lot when I see church events, Christian events, where people are charged an entry for it. And it bothers me because that's not the way it should be, in my opinion. You know, God wants to give a free gift. It's him that gives the work. So to be charged for me to listen to God speak bothers me. And I know that they're trying to raise money and all that stuff, but I don't, you know, take up an offering, whatever you want to do, but don't, don't be trying to charge for what God gives. And it says in verse 8, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you the service. He says, I was being paid while I was in Corinth, but it was other churches that paid my wages. And I don't really like the fact that he used robbed. I think it's a bad... And it is the right definition of this word. But oftentimes, even in our day, churches will help another church get started. And they'll say, we'll pay your pastor a certain amount of money for a year while you get started and you start getting your, your money up. And this is what Paul's saying. I took money from other churches so I could teach you. And he's trying to basically shame them. You know, I'm not, I didn't take anything from you, he's saying. And this is something that's important. He's going to later on say that the workman is worthy of his hire. Okay, because there are people out there that say pastors shouldn't be paid for their, for their work in a church. Paul never taught that. In this particular case, he said, Corinthians, I didn't charge you. I didn't make you pay me, but another church paid for my service to you. And it's very important for us to understand when people work for God, they, they deserve a wage, uh, especially if they're doing it full time. Ministering to people, I love teaching. I love bringing out God's word and hopefully simplifying it so people can understand it. He goes, verse 9, And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. So he said, when I needed something, the visitors from Macedonia paid for it. So he identifies what church it was that paid, paid for his, his needs. They gave him, they gave him supplies and, and money and finances. And he says, hey, when I needed anything, I didn't go to you guys. I didn't tell you that I needed, needed this stuff. I just took it from this other church that was supplying my needs. 
And this is something that is pretty important for us to understand. He goes, I have kept myself from being a burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Paul's saying, I don't want to be a burden to you, and I'm going to make sure that I continue to not be a burden to you. In Corinth, he's, he worked for a living. He made tents and, and built, you know, made tents for people and sold tents. That's how he earned his income. And he says, when I wanted something, the other church paid for it, not you. And this is a good and a bad thing. It's actually an indictment against Corinth. Okay, Corinth, you didn't care enough about me to supply my needs, and I wasn't going to make my needs known to you. And basically he's saying, really, you should have paid. You know, it was your, you were being taught. You were being raised up. You were being made into a church, and you would not even desire to pay. And this is something that even on our church, as small it is as it is, I encourage the church to pay me, not because I need the, I don't even really need the money, I've got a good job, but just that it's a discipline for the church to support the person who is teaching in the church. What I like more, obviously, I'd like, more, I'd like enough that I could quit my other job. <laughs> Probably won't happen uh, unless God does some miracle on, on, in, in this place, but, you know, but it is a discipline for the church to do so, to be able to honor. Why we, why we push the, the missionary offerings. That's why we give money to other mi missions so that they can get by and that we help them. Because I think it's important that we do these things. We help out other churches. We help out other people that may not be able to keep, them, keep themselves up. And that's what Macedonia did for Paul when he was in Corinth. They supported him. They go, Paul, we want you to keep working. We want you to keep preaching and if that means we help you, even though you're not in Macedonia, we look forward to your ministry. And in so doing, they got benefits for the Christians in Corinth because they supported them. Verse 10 says, As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Arcalia. You know, he says, I'm going to keep telling people about this. I'm going to tell them. What's he, who, who's he telling them about? What happened from Macedonia? I'm boasting about Macedonia. They care so much for the gospel going out that they're reaching out and paying to, for, for me to meet, be here. This has happened, this church has had times when it's paid for other, long time ago, paid for other pastors to be preaching at other churches for periods of time. Uh, the association that we give money to pays pastors for their first year of preaching in new, new start churches so that there's not a burden on that church when they start. And we have a part of that. So we do these things to help others get started. Because when the church first starts, it can't afford to have a pastor. You know, if you only have 20, 30 people, it's hard to afford a pastor. If you are just starting, you can't do that. If you have to pay for your building, you really can't start and do that. We're very fortunate here that we own our building. Completely. You know, when I first came here, the thing that we looked at was that to keep this church running, just its bills, straight up bills, is less than $600 a month. Now we're doing a lot more now with the things that we do, but you know, all we have to do is pay utilities to keep this church open. And so it's not a big deal for us, and yet we can reach out and help others. And we try to do that. And verse 11 is kind of an interesting statement. 
Why, why all this information? Because I don't love you? He says, God knows. He goes, God knows that I love you. You know, I'm not asking you to support me, not because I don't love you, but I don't want to be this burden. He's already got people looking at him saying, well, who is this Paul guy? You know, it's, uh, remember we talked earlier in the chapter, that some people in Corinth were saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. Some of the really spiritual people were saying, I'm of Christ directly, no. Uh, and he goes, I don't want to be the burden on you. You're already not recognizing me. So I don't want to be, I love you deeply. Sometimes we don't recognize love when it, when it comes down at the time. Love ends up disciplining and correcting. You know, children hardly ever recognize love from their parents during the time that they're growing up. You know, well, you just won't let me do anything. We tend to do the same thing to God. God, you just don't want me to have any fun. You don't want me to do anything. And God says, no, I love you too much to have you suffer these consequences. And Paul's saying, you know, you don't, Corinthians, you don't know how much I love you. Yeah, and this is what he's saying here. You don't know how much I love you. God does. And I'm not, not being a burden, not because I don't love you. He had every right to say, pay, pay me. He had every right, but he says, I love you so much, I'm not even going to ask that from you. And it's not because I don't love you um, that he was doing that. And then he goes on, but I do what I do that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, and wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. He says, I don't want to give people the occasion because he knew that there were people in Corinth, if he asked for them to pay him, they would be saying, oh, Paul's just here for the money. We hear that a lot of times. You know, they just do it because of the money. And Paul was saying, I'm not going to ask you for anything because I don't want anybody to make an accusation to me that I'm here just for the money. I love you so much and I'm not going to do that. He goes, I, he goes, and I hope they're just like me, that they're going to, they're going to minister to you freely without charge. He says that, that they may be found, and then he goes into 13 as a criticism, for, their, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, uh, deceitful workers, transforming them into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself transforms into an angel of light. He goes, these workers of iniquity, these people that are looking for occasion against me. He goes, they're false apostles. They're not, they're not looking to raise up. The apostles learned to love each other. They weren't trying to outdo each other. They weren't trying to destroy each other's ministries. And you know, the sad thing is there are churches out there where the pastor has tried to belittle other churches that are doing things. And we need to be able to say, God, thank you for what's being done. And I say this all the time. My job here is very simple. I just need to build God's kingdom, and he'll take care of the church. If I get people saved and, and moving with God, we need to lift up each other in churches because sometimes churches won't do anything together because they're so worried about who's going to get credit. Who's going to get credit for the people who get saved? Who's going to get them to come to their church? We're not here to build up our own churches. We're here to build the kingdom of God. If my job is to just get people saved and move them on to another church and, that's, and start them on their growth pattern, which it seems to be the pattern that we have here, praise God. It would be wonderful if that's, if that's all he wants, then that's what, it, that's what we'll do. We'll get people started on their path and let them go someplace else and minister somewhere else. If God chooses to keep this and make this a bigger church, I would praise God for that too. 
But it's all up to him because he's the one that sets it up. These others that are, that are trying to create occasion, they're false, they're false apostles, deceitful workers. You know, they're lying. They're trying to get something. And I've been where I've seen people who are trying just to make themselves look good. It's all about, look at me. Look how great I am. And if somebody leaves their class to go to some other class, they're like, what'd you do? You know, what'd you leave my class? What did I do wrong? Why, why are they better? You know, again, are we doing it because of who we are? Or are we doing it through Christ and who he is? And then he says, they transform themselves into the apostles of Christ. <coughs> they make this metamorphosis where they're saying, look at me. You know, we talked about the the false teachers on the, on the TVs and stuff, the, wear the, the $500 you know, three-piece suits or the $1,000 three-piece suits, whatever, whatever high-price suit costs them. You know, they look the part. They've got their you know, $100 haircut to make to the, so they look the part. They transform themselves. And then he says, it's no wonder because Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Most people have this really bad picture of Satan. You know, first off, they think of Satan as the devil with the red suit and the pitch tail, the, the pitchfork and the horns and the, and the tail. Nothing anywhere close to that. Satan was the archangel of heaven, the top angel of heaven. He is beautiful to behold. When we read the description of him in Isaiah and Ezekiel, it, the picture of him is of supreme beauty. Now, he's probably been a little uglified but, you know, from his sin, but he still has great beauty, and he shows himself as an angel of light. Most people would never recognize him because of what they conceive of him. He gives us more truth than lie, but just enough lie to poison. poison. You know, you know, we think about this. How much poison has to be in a, in a cup to kill somebody or make them sick? Uh, I listened a long time ago to a, to a children's story, and then they go, they were going, well, it's just a little, little lie. And so they, they gave them, they said, I've got some brownies for you, but I just want to tell you about these brownies. They have just a little bit of dog poop in them. Who wants them? And of course, nobody wanted them. But it was just a little bit. It was just a tiny bit. When we face sin, a little bit will destroy a little bit will drag us down, which is why we need to be on our guard against Satan, always, because he is out there looking good. Religion looks good. People get caught up in religion all the time. And when I use the word religion, I'm talking about a set of rules trying to appease a deity. Christianity is a relationship with God, not a bunch of rules. You know, I, am, I am not going out there saying you've got to do this, 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 and this to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is really simple. I admit that I'm a sinner and deserve punishment, and I accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And then he comes in and he changes me. We talked this morning about trust. It has to be a full trust. God, I, you're the only one that's going to get me there. It's not I said those right words and I put my trust in him and, and Buddha and Muhammad and and all these other people, is God, I put my trust in you. And then he does the work. I love Christianity because it's so simple. All I gotta do is walk with him and let him change who I am. 
And then verse 15, therefore it is of no great thing for his ministers also to be transformed into ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. He goes, these guys that look like Satan that are doing Satan's work, it's not a surprise that they appear to be good, good Christians. It's not a, not a surprise that they try to act the, act the part. He goes, that's what Satan does. So it's not a surprise that they do it. And, you know, I've met many of these people that they don't know God. They're not walking with God. They're not ministering for God. And yet, they look so much better than most Christians. You know, we all know people like that. They, they're not really Christians, but they put on the clothing of righteousness. They put on the clothing of good works. And you look at them and say, wow, this person really seems to have it all together. You know, they don't seem to lie. They don't seem to put down people, at least in public. If you know them behind the scenes, you probably see a whole different side of them. But they look at serving God in pretext. Our job is to not serve him in pretext. Our job is to let him change us. And again, I keep bringing this up because it's so important. My works are not something that I do. If they're what I do, it's just this whole cloak and dagger. You know, let me, let me make it look like I'm doing good. And these Christians fall into this a lot. And I've done it myself, come to church, have a fight with my wife, and come to church and say everything is okay. Well, I'm not, no, it's not good that day. Everything's terrible that day. You know, now, some of it we do because we just don't want to burden everybody around us. This is all that's going wrong in my life. And it's very important for us to be able to look at this and say, do we want to be a burden on people? No. But, you know, there should be somebody that we can just share, you know, hey, my life is a mess today. I need you to pray. We don't have to go into all the details, but because God doesn't need them. And this is something we need to be able to present to, to people. When people want to tell me, I need you to pray for this person, that's all I need to know about that person. God knows the details. Usually, in the Christian world, we hide our gossip, though, behind prayer requests. You need to pray for this person because, and we give them all the reasons why they need to pray for this person, and you know, we don't need to know it. You know, if we know somebody's having a hard time, that's all we need to know. Now, if that person comes up to me and shares how I need prayer in these specific things, then that's, that's a whole other thing. If you go up to somebody and say, I need you to pray, and this is what I need you to pray about, that's your call to, make, you know, to give them the information to pray about. But when you're asking for prayer for somebody else, all you need to do is say, this person needs prayer. They're having a really hard time with their family or, or with their job or whatever it might be, and let them go forward from there. All right. Well, we're going to end here because there's a... Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask you to help us live your life through us. Lord, help us to learn to surrender our life and allow you to crucify our life so that we can live the way you desire us to live. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.